Well, I grew up in Texas, um, and uh, uh, what uh, in the ninth grade in that t- in those days, junior high was seven, eight, and nine, and high school was ten, eleven, and twelve. Uh, they had a new school built, Richland Hills, which is a suburb outside of Fort Worth. <clears throat> um, and uh, so we went to this new school, and um, of course there was a new band director, and this guy was amazing, uh, Mr. Virgili. Um, he, uh, he he literally changed my life because I it, I went into the first day of school in the ninth grade thinking I was going to be an engineer of some kind, you know, and within a week I wanted to be a music major, and um, I was the only kid. All the four years of ninth through, you know, traditional high school now here, those ages, I was the only one that always knew what kind of major I wanted to be when I went to college. And most of the other kids in those days, they would just be a business major. They'd go to the University of Texas or wherever and be a business major. And um, um, as I was telling one of the groups today, um, my junior year, uh, I met this guy, Morgan Powell, who was a trombonist and played uh, lead in the one o'clock lab band. Actually, it was the two o'clock at that time. Okay. Uh, that's an interesting thing about this jazz Roman numeral stuff. It drives me nuts. Um, <laughs> well, uh, you, you called your top group Symphonic Wind Ensemble and your second group Wind Symphony. Yes. And what is this group called we just did? Concert Band. Concert Band. Okay. Uh, you guys don't go around saying wind on, Symphonic Wind Ensemble 1, Wind Ensemble 2. No. You know. Um, don't do it with the jazz groups either. Well, good. Hallelujah. Um, any case... Um, this guy was doing a student teaching at Haltom City uh, Junior High, and we found out about it, and he was a, a accomplished arranger and composer, jazz. And so uh, we got a whole bunch of the guys together, and we, we created a class of about 20 people uh, to meet him after um, school, you know, before he went back to Denton, sure. Texas. Uh, and I think we were throwing two bucks a head in, and it was like 60 or 80 bucks or whatever it was. You know, I don't forget the number of kids we had. Um, that was some decent loot in those days, mm-hmm. back in the late 50s. Um, and uh, I, f- for the first time, had, you know, l- real uh, lessons and f- did learn what the chords really were. You know, because before I was just, if it was G, I'd just go, well, it must be every other thing. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was, I've always been impatient. So uh, if it was all those old fake books, if it was like C for seven bars and then G7 at the uh, last bar, sure. you know, I'd go C for a while. And I said, well, I haven't used the E flat yet. So I just do it. Or I haven't used the G, something like that, you know. And it came out really sounding funky, except I liked it. So I okay. guess that got me started toward new music. <laughs> um, what were some of your pieces, uh, your favorite pieces, when you were growing up, middle school, junior high, oh, I, high school I, band? When, when I was in junior high, uh, I loved Dixieland. Okay. I sort of like followed jazz historically, you know, and then got into modern sure. jazz playing stuff. So I sort of like followed it, you know, and then we had a big band. So I, was in, I listened to a lot to the swing era, and then, then I started hearing these ridiculous things, you know. Uh, <laughs> I remember the first time, one day I said, I don't have a trombone. And what I meant was I didn't have a trombone album, jazz album. So mm-hmm. I went to the store we went to all the time. And there were two other guys. We were like buddies the whole time. We never bought the same album. Okay. Because we would rotate. You know, so uh, we had a heck of a jazz library until we went off to college. <laughs> <laughs> then we had a third, you know. Uh, and I bought this thing, and there's this, you know, you know, this guy, and he's holding a trombone. It's J.J. Johnson and Nat Adderley, and they played a Thelonious Monk tune. It was the first tune I flipped. I just flipped. My favorite um, band pieces were the Granger Things mm-hmm. and... Um, the uh, Holtz Suites, that sort of thing. Um, stuff wasn't as sophisticated, and it sure. wasn't near the choices. And there were a lot of still a lot of transcriptions mm-hmm. going on, you know. Um, but uh, by the time I graduated from high school, I had written several charts, 
and uh, uh, knew I wanted to go to North Texas. I had scholarship offers at other places, but I no, they didn't have that, you know, program. And um, I worked at a music store to get, you know, get extra money when I was in high school. And I decided that what I wanted to do was major in music education so that I would have the same training as my best customers. Because okay. I thought when I went off to North Texas, I was going to have fun and play and jazz and stuff. But then uh, I was going to settle down and have my own music store. And I knew my best customers would be the elementary and junior high people sure. because they start all those instruments. Because I was unpacking and inventory and all that stuff when I was a <clears throat> junior and senior in high school. And like everybody else that's ever gone to college, most people, I changed my mind about what I wanted to do about 40 million times, <laughs> you know, and it just evolved here, there, and whatever. By the time I finished, um, I got a bachelor's degree in music education, but I had the equivalent, because in those days you could do it, you know. Um, I would um, audit all the jazz courses. Okay. Um, I only have one class for credit in all my years of going to college that's in jazz. Mm -hmm. One arranging class. But I, I went to all the improv things that we sure, had sure. and I took lessons with Morgan the whole time he was there and I was there. <clears throat> um, so on paper you're not qualified for jazz back in Right, right. Okay. And also composition. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, I got, got my bachelor's degree in four years and I spent an extra year there as a grad student um, taking the advanced upper class composition courses to get me ready for mm -hmm. a master's. And then um, we heard about, by that time I was married and had a kid, you know, we got married right after our sophomore year. Um, we heard about this eccentric jazz band at University of Illinois that did more, you know, um, um, the, the Jamie Knapp was the guy, but it was more like uh, the writer for uh, that did all those things with Miles. I can't remember his name now. Marcus Miller. No, no, no. no. Uh, Sketches of Spain. Uh, well, anyway, it'll we'll come, Google it. It will come to you know. Uh, but you know, he did all these uh, interesting, sure. you know, arrangement stuff. And plus, they uh, had a hotbed of avant-garde stuff going on and North Texas uh, was way behind in that area um, and uh, they had at that time there were three operating electronic music studios in the United States one was at Princeton with Babbitt and one was uh, uh, in San Francisco and the other one was in Illinois so I applied you know just haphazardly you know and um they had like a hundred applicants for that master's degree that year and they picked five and I was one of them mm. to come and my wife flipped she said you're going <laughs> and I was scared to death because I had this nice bloom and I was <laughs> you know, plus I was doing a lot of gigging sure. you know because uh, there was a lot of work in those days in Dallas and Fort Worth um, but we went there and I was scared to death when we drove that campus the first day I, I was in the back seat I didn't say a word everybody's going wow look how big it is and I'm sitting there thinking wow look how big it is <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's interesting um, I played in uh, the marching band two years at North Texas first two years but then when I got married uh, I needed to take every gig I could so um, I didn't play in the marching band anymore and in those days if you didn't you know, suck up to the band director and do whatever, which meant playing the marching band. You you just, somehow, you just couldn't win the audition to get sure. into the, the top concert band. So, um, um, that was that. And when I went to Illinois, um, I was a composition major. And anybody knows Illinois' history, there's the band program over by the armory, a good distance from where all the music, school of music facilities are. I call it the Sonic Berlin Wall. <laughs> and in the two years I was there, I never once uh, went into the band building. Okay. or uh, I heard the band once, you know, because they did uh, one of those convocations sure. with Nellie Bell. Um, but I, I spent all this time with this wild, far-out avant-garde music stuff and uh, with the 
eccentric John Garvey, you know, uh, every time I rehearse, I honor him. You talk about stealing from people. I just stole from him. And he was a world-class violist. He was the violist in the Walden String Quartet and also a violinist. And I remember one time I told him in re after rehearsal, John, could you do me a favor? He said, yeah, what, Donis? Don't sing to us anymore. <laughs> he said, why? I said, it's like, you know, fingernails on the <laughs> you know, we were doing Fly the Foo Birds, and he's going, dooby dooby doo doo do. I said, don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> but uh, he was a master at doing all this music stuff and nuance and uh, shaping, and he brought all that great world-class chamber music, mm -hmm. you know, kind of mentality and just the whole thing about nuance and stuff. That's been a, a life for me. I've been doing it ever since. Sure. And um, then uh, I graduated, and I couldn't break this habit. It's a very hard habit to break, eating. <laughs> yeah. um, and so I needed to get a gig. And in those days, you could stay at the University of Illinois almost forever as a grad assistant. You know, you'd be paid a penance, but you could kind of make ends meet. Mm -hmm. And they'd talk about a womb, you know, and get really comfy and go through all the doctorate stuff and whatever. But I was married and had a kid. Plus, I was sick of school. You know, I was up to it. I'd gone seven straight years. And um, I remember walking into the uh, theory comp chair, and I told him, I said, uh, I won't be back next year. He said, do you have a job? I said, no. <laughs> and he says, well, people don't usually do that. I said, I know, but you need to find somebody to, you know, one of the, the, my, you know, graduate assistantship, and I'm not going to be back. You know, and he said, "Really?" <laughs> and uh, and I left, and and uh, I started looking, and I had some interviews at really good schools, including including uh, Oberlin. But uh, I was 25 years old. I looked like I was 17, and I had a master's degree. And that's just when the doctorate started to sure. really rare its ugly head. You know. And what type of positions were you looking for? Oh, theory comp. Theory comp. Yeah. Okay. Right. And um, as I said, I had this habit. Uh, I couldn't break, and so I finally went back to the guy who was in charge of, uh, you know, helping pe place people, and I said, okay, tell me about these high school jobs, you know, because I wanted a college thing, whatever, and he says, well, as it turns out, um, uh, there's a job open at Evanston Township High School, I said, where's that? You know, because I was from a third world country, Texas. I didn't know about it. You know? And he, he said, well, it turns out that the uh, uh, personnel manager there, uh, he and I were uh, college roommates. So I gave him a call, and uh, I, I went up there, and I was shocked because I came to this gigantic campus. I'd never seen anything like it. Uh, and you're from Texas. <laughs> well, but in those days, the schools weren't all that big. Uh -huh. um, and in my day, there were hardly any string programs hmm. at all, you know. Um, but in any case, uh, I, I got there, and there was this gigantic campus. And they were, <coughs> excuse me, just finishing the construction and all that stuff. Um, and I found a parking place, and I walked through this long hallway, art wing. And this was before people started doing all sorts of nasty things like, you know, marking up stuff and vandalizing. From floor to ceiling, all the way down, both sides of the hall, were uh, paintings. And I looked at it, I was like flabbergasted by high school kids. I mean, it was serious stuff. And inside the cabinets were like pots and jewelry, and one had clothes. The art designer, uh, the the, uh, the chair of the art department would eventually, every once in a while, take, you know, a week or two off, fly to New York, design clothes for a play or a musical, and then come back and finish teaching and stuff. <laughs> I mean, it was that la level of stuff going on at that school. Well, when I got to the music wing, I was absolutely shocked. They had three large rehearsal rooms, 22 practice rooms. They even had a four-manual pipe organ in the auditorium. Yes. You know, and I sit down with this guy who's the boss, Richard Rosal, who's another life changer, um, who had a PhD in musicology, who had just left 
the New England Conservatory of Music to take over the chairmanship. Okay. Uh, he said, too bad you didn't get, we couldn't have gotten you here yet. Last night you could have heard our composition recital. I said, you're what? You know, so this woman there was teaching composition and all this stuff. And I, and I was hired to be the assistant band director. Um, and I was a rookie, stupid. Oh, Lord. God, <laughs> it's embarrassing. Uh, but these wonderful mentors, um, Bill Idle was the band director and Al Mistak, the orchestra conductor, and Richard Rosewall was the boss and the choral guy, and they all had 12, 15 years' experience, and I'm this stupid rookie. And they were just so sweet. They took me under their wing, and, you know, my first rehearsal, cadet band, ninth grade band, I put on the desk the first thing to play with the band a 6-8 march you're smiling both of you (laughs) (laughs) I lowered my hands and I heard John Cage's 4 minutes and 33 seconds (laughs) they had no idea it was devastating I was ready to quit and or kill myself after that first rehearsal and the three of them spent the whole rest of the day pumping me back up cheering me up and you know I learned the hard way uh but uh, I spent 12 years there. Um, I did the marching band. I always did the jazz. And um, the boss knew that I was into far out music. In fact, I asked him about two or three years after I was there and I got tenure. I said, Richard, why did you end up hiring me? And he says, well, we could have found plenty of guys that could do brass and jazz, but you were the only one that was into avant-garde music. Mm. That's the kind of leader that guy was. And he was a great boss because what he did, he made sure all eight of us, there were eight full-time music teachers, each one of us was first chair at something. Hmm. We were the reigning expert, you know? So you could go and do missionary work with the second band or the freshman band or something. You always had a musically redeeming experience during the week. And you were always the expert, right? What a... Well, I copied him when I took over the High School Institute, you know, years later. <clears throat> and I spent 12 years there. Uh, my last three years, I only did the two ch- jazz bands because I took over Betty um, Jacobson's uh, uh, load. She retired, and I had uh, two sections of material music, one section of um, fundamentals of music. It was for kids who wanted to learn how to read music. Mm-hmm. And the materials of music, you had to be a fluent music reader in at least one clef. Okay. And I had 35 kids in electronic music. And my last year, I had 10 independent students. And, and can you tell me again what the time frame of this was? Was the 60s, 70s? I got there in 67, and I left in 79. Okay. I was there 12 years. We still only have a MIDI lab here at North, yeah. and it's 2016. <laughs> well, this, this, this will tell you what kind of boss I had. He could tell I was getting, uh, I don't know how to say it, um, a little bit down on just doing all nothing but band stuff sure okay and he called me in the office one day he says are you still interested in trying to do something with electronic music and I said yeah he says well I've been hoarding money Mm. see what you can do this is 1971 he says see what you can do with uh, you know $2,500 well that was a lot of money then that's like 10,000 now Uh, and I was shocked man and so, um, irony of ironies, I went to Illinois because they had electronic music, but the guy who ran it was on sabbatical, okay. and the guy that subbed it, all he talked about was political stuff, and <laughs> philosophical stuff, and I didn't even take the second semester. So I had no training. I just had interest. So I had to self-teach, and we, we created a summer electronic music class for like two weeks so I could just learn how to do it and stuff. And I uh, went to Northwestern and um, quizzed those people and I quizzed the people down in Illinois. And uh, I, I had kids whose parents were professional musicians. Okay. One guy had his own um, um, jingle thing and so he was into recording all this stuff. So he donated a mixer that he didn't need anymore you know, we had the old plugs and all this stuff, and uh, gave me reels and reels of used tape and empty reels and whatever. 
and then I bought some tape, a couple of tape decks, and uh, a synthesizer. And there you go. And by the time I left, uh, like I said, I'd have like 35 kids in electronic music. And of those 10 independent students, you know, they were either taking jazz arranging or straight up composition or composition with the electronic medium, right? And uh, right before I got the job offer at NU, uh, I was the only teacher that year because they decided to put a kibosh on any more new courses and stuff, except they passed, believe it or not, in 1979, electronic music too. Mm. So I wouldn't have to do independent stuff. Can you imagine such a place? <laughs> so, so kid, it sounded like at Evanston, kids could almost take what three or four years of music, but not in a performance ensemble. There were kids. Who, there were kids who were so into music, they pretty much knew they wanted to be music majors. Sure, they would go to summer school to take required classes so they could take extra music classes. Okay, we get a little bit of that goes on yeah. here as well. But I, I just think it's cool that it's outside of the performance. Thing as well. The, the where, boss is know. real big on that. Yeah. You know, non-performance stuff. We like. I had 125 kids, not in the bands. Yeah. yeah. Some of them were from the bands, sure. and orchestra and choir, and then out in the hallways, piano players, and other kids. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, Mallory Thompson was my student teacher. And uh, it was in the winter, and she was working with the cadet band, and Bernie Dabrowski, who was at that time an associate or assistant direct, uh, dean, said, Don, can I talk to you for a minute? I said, sure. So we went upstairs and shut the door. He says, what is the nature of your disinterest in our position? And I went, what? Because they've been looking for, you know, Cliff Colnut's replacement for now this is the second year, okay. you know, to be painter's assistant. And I said, you must have had 100, 150 applicants. He said, we did. <laughs> I said, well, you know, I said, I got to tell you, Bernie, I just got out of two men's job, you know, just a couple of years ago. Sure. And that's a workaholic thing, what he was doing. And plus, I have to buy groceries at Dominic's. I can't go in there and say, I teach at Northwestern. I have uh, status. That's not going to buy groceries for my family. He said, well, things have changed. I said, well, I didn't know that. He said, well, let me tell you. <laughs> so he did, and he was so awesome to be watching Mallory teach. And so, so, so for about an hour, he went on and on and on. And um, he said that um, they were going to hire two people. And uh, they were really interested in me, you know, talking to me and stuff. And I said, well, oh, I didn't know all this. Sure, I'd be interested in talking. I'd be happy. Well, before the day was out, Tom Miller, the dean of the School of Music, called and wanted to know if I could meet that day. I just lied. I said, uh, no, no, I got, I got a rehearsal. It was just too fast, you know. <laughs> I needed a, whoa. And um, I thought I was going to an interview, but I walked in, and within five minutes, he offered me the job. Wow. You know, those days are over. Did you have to I fill out the online common application that, and do the, no. do the teacher survey 75 no, questions? No, no, none of that no? stuff existed, oh. no. And, uh, lucky you. Yeah, well, yeah, and uh, uh, when we, cause I knew him socially. Uh, I'd had his kids, Okay. and I knew him socially uh, through the orchestra conductor at uh, Evanston. Uh, we'd go to cocktail parties and stuff, whatever. And I remember talking to him one time. I said, I can't believe you're a dean. You're actually fun. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I'm a human being, Don. I like to have fun. I said, I know, but I didn't know that happened. Anyway, um, uh, so um, it was just like, whoa, dizzy. And they said they wanted to hire a senior guy and a junior high, and they had names, and my name was the senior guy. Okay. <sighs> So those days are gone, you know. But but before we end uh, in, into it too much, as before Painter could show up, John Painter, the director sure, band, sure. he was coming from something. Uh, I stopped. And I said, "Wait a minute, let's get something straight here right now. If the doctor's involved here, let's let's just cease this conversation. We've been friends. We'll just go out. I'll buy you a drink." He says, "I said my doctor's over there at sixteen hundred Dodge Avenue. It's called that Electronic Music Studio." He says, I know. 
he said, I'm sure this is not politically correct. He said, I'm not sure I trust anybody with a doctorate in conducting. <laughs> because at that time, we didn't offer a doctorate at Northwestern. Uh. You know. In any case, um, I got the gig, and um, it was a great opportunity. Uh, it was scary. The first time I walked down Regenstein Hall, the top floor, uh, I, I had to meet somebody, and I had to go to the restroom. I went to the restroom because it was the end of the hallway, and I came back this way, and I saw Vincent Chickowitz, Dale Clevenger, and Frank Crisofoli before I got to the secretary's office, and I'm saying, what am I doing here? <laughs> but uh, I was scared to death, and my mentor, Bill Idle, he says, Don, whatever you don't know or can't do right now, you'll grow into the job. Sure. And uh, So when did that fear go away, or did it ever go away? Uh, it dissipated after uh, the second year. Okay. Actually, uh, I had quite a... Uh, baptism starting right off the second year you know how the second year is just uh, <laughs> you know you, you've settled in and uh, you know you just feel more comfortable and whatever uh, I got a phone call and it was from Tom Miller the dean he says Don I'm appointing you acting director of bands John's in the hospital he's going to have open heart surgery mm. so now I'm acting director of bands so that was that was scary. Um, and, but anyway, that um, that didn't make it as easy, uh, <laughs> uh, in part because uh, when John was out, you know, he was a powerful person in that program, uh, that school of music, and the orchestra guy wanted to make changes on how players were doled out to the mm. different ensembles and I just put my foot down even though I didn't have tenure yet I said my job is to uh, circle the wagons to keep everything status quo until the old man is good and comes back then you guys can fight out and I got backing from you know the associate dean and the dean and the acting chair you know so we put a kibosh on that okay. um, uh, politics and higher academia as Kissinger said, you know, when he taught at one of those highfalutin schools after he was Secretary of State. Okay. Somebody asked him, why are the politics so high in academia? He says, so the politics are so high in academia because the stakes are so low. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in that first interview, uh, my boss then to become my boss, Tom Miller said, I believe in hiring good people and letting them create their jobs. So by my fifth year, I moved out of the marching band um, uh, role and took over the contemporary music ensemble because it had been under the guise of the composition thing, but uh, they tended not to be terribly organized or okay. logistic, whatever. And... Um, so when they asked me if I would consider doing it, I said, yeah, but I have conditions. And then they said, what? And I said, well, we're going to do a concert every quarter, and it's going to be uh, in the um, regular calendar. And we're going to have a, a regular rehearsal time. They didn't have a regular rehearsal time. They met ad hoc whenever. <laughs> and the comp guy said, well, how are you going to do that? How do you know you're going to have players? I said, it's going to be hard in the beginning, but if I do a good job, they're going to make sure their schedules fit. And eventually that came to be. I did that for 20 years. <coughs> you were doing the jazz band right away when you got always, there? Yeah. Always. I always led the top band. Yeah. And we only had um, like three big bands, and that was it, and one arranging class. When I left, we had uh, two degrees and uh, undergraduate and graduate jazz majors and five combos and a full curriculum for undergrad and graduate degree in, well, which you did, mm -hmm. pedagogy degree. Yeah, so. so was that time at Evanston, you know, you said your second year got to be a little bit more comfortable. Um, did you ever have any regrets then about leaving your, your high school position or, as you said, they, they daily, let you create your job? Daily. <laughs> the first year daily. See, I moved from a high school gig to a uh, a high-powered school of music, all right? Mm -hmm. 
my wife went to the same job every day, came back to the same home. Where'd she work? She worked she... at Glenview State Bank. We live okay. in Glenview. My girls went to their schools. So they weren't uprooted. We didn't. We, the whole family didn't make this big move. Sure. Just I did. What's the matter with Daddy? He doesn't smile anymore. <laughs> 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 you know. And, and I had, did they mean Uncle Daddy? Yeah and, I, and I, yeah. and I remember friends saying, you know, I knew him when he used to smile. You know, I mean, uh, the thing is, that the Northwestern uh, music major is the master of the poker face. I've I've learned since that even in that first year there were kids really excited to be in my groups really loved it and, and some of them have told me that have gone on to be teachers that you know they you know quote D.O. every day they rehearse and stuff but I didn't know it at that time because all I was looking at was sourpusses <laughs> and I was used to uh, the, the uh, being lined up to audition to get into my classes at uh, Evanston sure and so I didn't know how to read these kids and stuff man you know, eventually I did, and uh, eventually, just uh, out of dadgum stubbornness, I I started like insisting that I got some sort of feedback, you know, from kids and stuff. And by the end, you know, there would be kids in the jazz ensemble that would actually be smiling hmm. at times and stuff. But boy, the first year was like poker face. <laughs> Tell us about the crying chair. Well, I stole that from Al Mistak, who had a crying chair at Evanston Township High School. Uh, in my office, there was a chair right by my desk, and the, all, I always had tissue there. <laughs> and uh, we just finally referred to it as the crying chair, you know, because kids, uh, I mean, uh, one of the things that struck me right away my first year at Northwestern, I've never seen so many youngsters with trembling fingers, hands, uh, the stress, you know, of the competition, that high-level competition musically, plus, you know, they're paying a lot of money yeah. to go to that school and whatever. And these are all type A's. I mean, personality, they've never seen anything but A's. And this is the first time uh, they've ever experienced getting a B or C or god-awful D or F. Yeah. Are you kidding? And so... Uh, very high strung, you know, sort of thing. And like, um, it just t turned out that I was sort of like the, uh, the shrink, <laughs> you know, <laughs> by default. And uh, I remember one time, uh, one of the, he was a very successful middle school band director here. He, he walked in, he was a band staff manager. And the old man wasn't that easy to work with, especially with the kids, because he would lose his temper and they, he, he was very intimidating. You know, especially to the undergrads and grads. Uh, uh, he came in one day and he sat down. I said, Wayne? He says, no, I just need to sit here. <laughs> he says, it, it already has my butt prints anyway. I just need to sit here. <laughs> and so, like, it just became a, a tradition, the crying chair. You know? And, and sometimes, uh, like Wayne, uh, they just come in and sit down. Sure. And I, you know, see, can I help you? No, I just need to sit here. I said, okay, fine. <laughs> Do my work. <laughs> we have a crying chair in this. It's a Dan's chair, but yeah. it's usually Dan crying. <laughs> Sometimes I console him. Most of the time, I just go back to you know, what I'm doing there. Go ahead. I know my, my time at Northwestern was actually good preparation for here, because here in Naperville North, we have a lot of the same thing going on. Yeah. Kids are very, very grade conscious. Families very grade conscious. Right. So it was, uh, you know, that kind of prepared me for coming here. Because I, I remember marching band, you know, we'd get around to the first midterms and suddenly there's all these sad children all over the field that just got their first B in right. their entire lives. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I remember I was on the tower and I turned to the band staff manager my first year. I said, what's wrong? He said, it's their first time. I said, what? He said, uh, midterms just got turned back exams. And I said, yeah? He says, well, it's, it's their first time. I said, first time for what? He says, not getting an A. <laughs> and so there, there was 175, 200 kids out there. It was like dark. It was the crying field. And, and the, sun, the sun was out and it was dark. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, if you would, if you wouldn't mind sharing, you know, you you were talking about your high school 
days and you said you just made some stupid mistakes or did some, some goofy things, if, if you wouldn't mind, because this would make me feel a lot better and probably other people that um, are listening to it. Any, any examples of just some things that you look back well, and you're like, what Don't start with the freshman band with the six egg Well, box. there's that. Okay. <laughs> That's a duh. Uh, I got advice that I didn't follow. Okay. And I should have. Okay. Al Misdak told me, start off tough. Mm. Start off tough. And uh, and I didn't. I missed a good bar and I was, you know, friendly, palsy wowsy. And he warned me the first time I needed to lower the boom, you know, it wouldn't whatever. Well, so the second year, the first rehearsal with uh, uh, the cadet band. Mm-hmm. I looked like some mix of Attila the Hun and a Russian dictator, you know. Uh, I mean, I just scared the out of them, you know. And I didn't crack a smile, man, for like three days. Wow. And I didn't crack a joke or anything, you know, till I, you know, whatever. And he told me, he says, if you start off tough and whatever and, you know, firm, then, you know, the third or fourth day, you can crack a joke, and they won't get it right away, and then they'll start to laugh, and they'll say, oh, oh, he's a good guy. He said, if you start the other, said, what happened to him? <laughs> you know, what's, what's wrong with him today? Yeah. You know, so that's something I learned right away. Um, I also learned that um, by mistake that uh, kids... Uh, can't talk and play at the same time. There's not too many drummers that can actually do that, too. They can't play and talk mm-hmm. at the same time. And um, I learned to get control of the classroom and to get people playing right away. Um, I noticed you guys, you immediately have control of the classroom. You don't have them playing right away, but you have them doing stuff right away. Uh, and you don't go in and you go shush, shush, all that stuff. And obviously you teach the sanctity of the podium, you know. Um, I really believe in that. Um, when I see a band director uh, working and they don't use a podium, I just don't get it. Because uh, what I've learned to do is um, uh, I mount the podium and God has showed up and democracy is over. <laughs> <laughs> one man, one vote, me. <laughs> uh, and uh, we work. And one of the things I do when uh, we change pieces uh, is I, I learned uh, the hard way. I now get off the podium. I dismount because there's going to be racket. They're going to be talking some, they're shuffling the music, and the percussion's moving furniture. And, you know, it's, it's, there's going to be behavior I don't want to tacitly approve by being on the podium. Mm-hmm. So when I think it's enough time, then I get back on the podium and I expect, here we go, that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, uh, the beginning of rehearsals with the high school institute that I ran for, I was the director of it for 14 years. And prior to that, I did, you know, uh, shared the wind ensemble with John. And after a while, I, I did it all because he was out flying all over the country. Um, I told him, I said, you can set your clock on me. Our rehearsal starts at 8. I won't stand on the podium at 7.59.59, and I will not stand on it at 8.00.00.00.01. You can set your life on me. It will be 8 a.m., and you better be ready to play the F, because I'm not going to say a word. I'm just going to drop my hands, and I expect to hear a unison F. You know, so it, I, I really came to believe, and still do, in the sanctity of the podium, and the sanctity of of uh, the beginning of the ritual of the rehearsal and then go crazy, you know, then become very unpredictable. Uh, I, I don't like to see people warm up when uh, all they do is all techniques the whole warm up time because what they're doing is saying, all right, students, you don't need to watch. Sometime during the, the, the beginning of the rehearsal, you know, the beginning of the warm up stuff, uh, do expressive musical gestures and make music, you know, with a scale or something. So they have to watch. Sure. You know, 
Because we all know the more they watch, the better they sound. Well, and I, I loved what you did out there, if you wouldn't mind explaining about um, you picked a different starter. Oh, my designated starter? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, um, that just evolved doing all these clinics all these years. And um, frankly, I hate to say this, uh, going and starting to work with kids, and I give it a preparatory beat, and they can't play. They don't know how to play because they're always counted off at, you know? Um, so when I would encounter that group, I say, okay, all right, say the word play. One, two, ready, say, play. I say, okay, ready? Two, three, say, play. Okay, three, say, play. Okay? Now say play when I think you want me to say play. <laughs> I give the down and they'd say play. I say, okay, fine, it's not rocket science. We can do that. Okay? And then I said, I'm not good enough to uh, start everybody. I, it's too hard. It's too many people. But I know how to start one. And I want everybody to watch, so I have a designated starter, and I change the designated starter every time I start. So you never know if you're the designated starter, so you have to watch. You know? Yeah. And you notice that once that, that happened, they, the attack got better, and yeah. the tone and the tuning, you know, pretty much everything. You know? Uh, and it all came because their eyeballs are up. You know? Uh, now that's become a real uh, you know, highly expected thing of me. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's definitely something I'm stealing. So well, just letting you know. The other thing I do is um, I didn't have to do it here, but um, a lot of places, even good places, um, uh, I'll say, okay, everybody stand except bassoons and tubas. You can sit. You know, and I'll look around the room see if anybody's injured. So everybody stand, and I say, okay, play. You know, and of course, immediately it's better. <laughs> the tone is better, the tuning is better, and everything. And, you know, I just play some scales or warm or whatever we're doing. And then I'll say, okay, now, why did it sound better? I didn't say anything about playing with better tones or better in tune. I said, it's because you're in an athletic position of readiness to play the instrument. You know? And I said, you help me. We're sonic athletes. We are doing... Uh, physical exaggerations of something. If, if I was a basketball coach, <coughs> um, I might walk into the room, but if I'm going to run the clinic, they're going to be running and jumping. So that's an exaggeration of walking. Well, if I'm going to do a band, except for the percussion, we're exaggerating staying alive. The three of us are sitting here now, it's no problem, we're living. But if we're going to start to play a trumpet or some other instrument, we're going to exaggerate intake and outtake. So we have to be in an athletic position of readiness to be able to do that. You know, and it starts with your feet. You know, and then you sit down and it's where's my spine, where's my head, and that happens in all my clinics all the time. You know, like, the only thing that changes is the order. <laughs> but where's my head, where's my spine, where are my feet? Um, uh, you know, the the fundamental posture and the fundamental uh, instrument position stuff will solve so much. And the bad of those will cause so yeah. much. <laughs> it's, you know, and it's funny because people say, oh, what, this guy's from this hoity-toity school and he's, you know, blah, 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 blah. you know, he's going to come in and, you know, what? and then I go straight to fundamentals. But I would walk up and down the hallways, and if the door was open, I'm they're spending thousands of dollars, and here's, uh, you know, Arnold Jacobs saying, or Rex Martin, who followed him, too, he says, blow through the horn. <laughs> <laughs> High-level stuff. Yeah, I mean, you know, really esoteric. Uh, I remember, and in you, I mean, so often, if, you know, if we didn't start well, you would just stop and, and look at us and just say... Play better. I know. Yeah, yeah. And, and we would well, play better. I always go to something from Hater one time. He says, I'm going to say something genius right now. Everybody, listen, this is going to be genius. The room got quiet. He says, Play better in tune. <laughs> <laughs> and damn if they didn't. <laughs> so you used to talk about something that you always used to say was think like a band director. But what does that mean? As far well, as this is going to frighten me. Yeah. Well, I. Uh, 
band, band directors are list makers and you know they're always organizing lists and stuff and that sort of thing and but they're also uh, very uh, logistic oriented and organized because you have to be you know you do marching band the first you know part of the year and um, Al used to always tease uh, Bill and I said you guys making lists again <laughs> you know and we're uh, neurotic about uh, recruiting you know, and we're always checking the lists of the kids and whatever schools they are and how they're doing and trying to, you know, and you know, looking for their names and the computer and all that stuff. And uh, Frank Lestina, who is a tremendously uh, successful orchestral uh, musician, conductor, teacher, uh, just retired recently, but he is a classic example of... Uh, the orchestral conductor who thinks like a band director and he tells it straight up you know he got uh, coaching from the guy that was at uh, uh, Western Illinois for a long time uh, you might have had him not uh, Dale uh, Hopper but the other guy that did the uh, the concert band anyway he was a successful high school band director and then he went to Western Illinois <clears throat> and um, precise yeah um and then the guy that followed him, John something, I can't remember his name. Anyway, uh, he told me that one time uh, he just went to his fellow band director. He was at some school where the band was really good and the strings were, you know, just building. And he said, what do you do and whatever? And the guy just told him some stuff. And then he started going to rehearsals, you know. And he just started stealing uh, um rehearsal techniques and translating it into string usage and there you go but um, you know like I had success with the contemporary music ensemble in large part because I thought like a band director I didn't think like a composer you know uh, I can do all that far out esoteric stuff and whatever but the, uh, the, the, the guys that were there uh, none of them came up with this concept of like we're going to have regular rehearsals we're going to have a target concert I mean you're laughing you're laughing because that's so silly yeah. but you know it's it's like creative geniusness to some certain people right and then to others it's like being anal retentive you know whatever but uh, you know well you experience that in the jazz seminar yeah you know here you were, the, and there were a couple of them that, you know, <laughs> needed to follow you around. <laughs> well, they started to get get it as the year went by, but in the beginning, they were like, clueless. Yeah. I always joked here with, um, I mean, any school, and this is with no disrespect meant to anyone, but you'll have some teachers here that they'll be in charge of prom, and they just freak out. You know that week before, mm -hmm. and I've always said, being a music teacher, it's it's almost like you're planning a wedding or a prom weekly sometimes. So, <laughs> you know, with us, like it gets to be these big overnight trips. Whenever it's not a big, it's a big deal. Your first year teaching, you're bringing parents' most prized possessions, you know, to mm -hmm. um, class. Right. Or, or I'm sorry, to uh, to trips. Well, uh, Bill Idle said in the first year or so I, it, it never dawned on me but he was right he says he says I love it man the, all these administrators are trying to figure out ways for um, you know accountability mm. you know well, you guys can get up talking to answer the door I'm behind I, I can't speak to Mr. Moore but uh, he said we're accountable all the time mm. he says all our final exams are public yeah and he says, not only that, they're recorded permanently. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, you do the concert and you have the, the, the tape of the, the concert. I'm talking about accountability. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and uh, we didn't do one concert a year or something, you know, or a semester. Mm -hmm. You know, they were, it was ongoing all the time. So it was a constant state of accountability. Sorry, we got kids that go to the school that I know, need, need I know. things. Yeah. <laughs> well, I know we got to wrap up here um, in a second, and and we know you're you're a composer as well. And and where can people find your your stuff? 
to uh, Don purchase. DonOwensMusic.net. And you were, uh, Dan was saying, you're not Donald, you're Don. That's yeah. Man, you're so lucky. Well, no, <laughs> no, I, I, I said, I said cool my Donald. folks must have had a premonition that I would be informal. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Or perhaps a godfather. That's yeah, right. Yeah. No, it's Don. I, actually, uh, I got a f- serious ribbing when I got the gig at Northwestern from my mentors. They said, if you buy one of those tweed jackets with the leather elbow patches, we're going to burn it with you in it. <laughs> and, he's, and, and Al was the funny Start one. He's, smoking a pipe. He said, he said, and don't be buying a sports car with leather patches on the front fenders. <laughs> and, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, Meanwhile, all the choir directors are running around with black turtlenecks. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, I have a whole thing about that. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, Painter was John P. Painter, you know, and uh, uh, all these, you know, M. William Carlins was one of the composition guys. And I thought for a minute, but I never shared it publicly, that I might go D. Dwight Owens. That sounded more... Academe or, 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 yeah, or more <laughs> composition, you know, whatever. And then I thought, no, that's probably like the tweed jacket. <laughs> and I could get hurt. <laughs> so, no, I, uh, no, I didn't do that. I always, uh, if, if I ever had uh, opportunity, I'd never joined any of these groups. I, guess, I don't know why, but uh, if... We had something in, uh, associated with the ABA. Mm-hmm. I always wore a turtleneck. Okay. <laughs> and if we had something with the CBDNA, the College Band Directors National Association, I always wore a tie. Okay. Because I, I call the CBDNA guys the turtleneck club. <laughs> the windbag guys, the turtleneck club. <laughs> and the band directors wear ties, so I would always wear the opposite, just All out right. of re- rebellion. <laughs> Well, we thank you yeah, for, thank for sitting you. with us and working with our kids today. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. We, was, I think we all learned some, some great it stuff. It was nice to, to work with the kids, and I'm so thrilled that uh, this program has maintained such a high level of excellence. That's great. Glad I kept the mic going there. Good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean it. All right. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Cool.